Our society is changing by the minute, and you might not have even noticed. I'm Bill Schaefer with Mark Middleton, and this is Growing Bolder, the program designed to change the way we think about aging and why you need to do it now. We're moving towards a society where there will be more people over 65 than there are under 18. Think about that for a minute, because that is going to completely change how we live, how we govern, and how we pay for things as well. Things are changing, folks, and you're going to learn why you need to be ahead of the game. Yeah, the future bill is filled with challenges, but also opportunities, and we've got to help kind of structure everything moving forward. In the next hour, uh, we're going to find out why Mary Carrillo of Real Sports with Bryant Gumbel couldn't believe what she saw at the National Senior Games. Of course, Bill and I saw it first, but uh, it was fun to see her reaction. Also, a pageant contestant who became a medical doctor, who became a licensed drone pilot, where taking advantage of opportunities can lead us. But first, would you like to know where your life is headed? You're about to hear from one of the world's top demographic futurists who says it's time to get ready for what's coming our way. Ordinary people, extraordinary lives, and stimulating conversation. That's next on Growing Bolder. Despite the many challenges that are presented almost daily by our overtly ageist culture, I'm pretty sure you guys know that we believe that this is the greatest time in the history of humankind to be aging. If you make the right lifestyle choices, if you surround yourself with the right kind of people, and yes, if you have a little bit of luck, the opportunity for decades of life beyond what's considered to be normal retirement age, uh, greater than ever these days. But of course, the challenges of a rapidly aging population are also immense, and not just in this country, but in countries all over the world. In fact, some say that the challenges we face in the decades ahead because of our aging population are nothing short of the challenges that are presented by global warming. And to get a real sense of what's ahead for all of us as individuals and for us as a country and for us as a planet, we got to have somebody with a really sophisticated crystal ball. And folks, we have got him today. Uh, Bradley Sherman is one of the world's preeminent demographic futurists. He's an expert on the cultural, the social, the political, the economic impact of the world's aging population. He's the author of the Super Age, Decoding the Demographic Destiny. And, you know, it's really one of those rare books that makes you feel really smart because not only is it filled with important mind expanding information uh, and a whole lot of really deep research, it's presented in a way that's understandable and dare I say, in a way that is enjoyable to read. Before becoming a celebrated big brain thought leader, he was among other things, the global director of partnerships and strategic engagements for AARP. He is Bradley Sherman and I'm thrilled to chat with him today. Bradley, how you doing? I'm great. Thanks for having me today, Mark. I appreciate your time. Let's start with your book if we can, because I know it's called Super Age. I got a copy of it right here, folks. Uh, it, it is a tremendous read. Your company is also Super Age. It's not just a great title. It is actually a UN designation. Tell us what it represents. That's correct, Mark. It represents the first time in human history where at least one out of five people 
will be over the age of 65. And shortly after we pass that threshold, we move into a period where there'll be more people over the age of 65 than under the age of 18. Hmm. So this is going to radically transform how we live, how we govern ourselves, how our economy functions. And it's a period full of promise, but also peril if we don't take advantage of the changes that are here for us today. And, and I think a lot about what's driving this change is not just the fact, Bradley, that there's, what, 10,000 of us turning 70 each and every day, but, but hasn't our birth rate been declining in recent years a, a good bit? Yeah, our birth rate's actually been in pretty steep decline since uh, about 25 years ago, but it's part of a long-term trend. In fact, birth rates started to decline around the time the United States was founded as a country in the 1770s. And that path has continued almost consistently right up until that baby boom period, that post-war period, where we saw an explosion of births. Birth rates came down again after the baby boom with Gen X, uh, millennials. And ever since the millennial period, we've actually seen a pretty steep drop in birth rates. You know, before I ask you some specifics, Bradley, it seems like the more that I learn about aging and this age wave that is now rolling over us, you know, the more I think about that Charles Dickens line, it was the best of times, it was the worst of times, right. it was the age of wisdom, it was the age of foolishness. Where do you fall along that spectrum in terms of your overall belief in the future? Are you optimistic about our ability to not only deal with the societal change, but, but maybe even to leverage it for our good? I've been accused of being overly optimistic. I like and it. I like being accused of that because we need more optimism in this world today. The reality is being a demographic futurist allows me to do a lot of things. And one of those things is to look to the past for inspiration towards the future. And when I say we were on a steady birth rate decline for a long period of time, that is truth. So before the baby boom happened in 1946, the United States had seen really 20 years of pretty, pretty steep birth rate decline because we went through a 20 year, almost 30 year period of just turmoil, two world wars, uh, a global pandemic uh, known as the Spanish flu and the Great Depression all wrapped up into this period. So coming out of that post-war period where we had this really good optimism, really great focus on the future and what presented it to us, we had this spike in birth rates. But interestingly enough, our demographic profile as a nation looked a lot more like 1950s America than it did pre-pandemic, at mm -hmm. least in terms of the labor market. So in 1950s America, one out of two men over the age of 65 was working. We're seeing a rapid uptick in the number of people, the percent of people working past 65 today. We saw great benefits because employers had to fight for talent, fight for labor. Um, and really, it was the golden era of the United States. I think we're going back to a period quite like that. Tell me a little bit about being a demographic futurist, because you know, I think we all, when we hear about these trends and we read about them, it's kind of like, you know, duh, there it is. But few people really pay attention to it and fewer than that understand, you know, what it's going to lead to. Is that fun for you? Is that difficult for you? How do you connect the uh, dots between what is now and what might be in the future? Yeah, it's a it's a double-edged sword. On one hand, it's so exciting to predict what's coming and then to see it come to fruition. On the other hand, it's like banging my head against a wall because people don't listen until they can see. 
And oftentimes what is right in front of their face, and as I say in the book, what's underfoot and everywhere doesn't pop up until someone points it out to them. And this aging of our population has been happening for some period of time now. In fact, it's been about 100 years since our birth rates started their upward ascent. We went from a culture in the late 1800s that lived to be about, on average, 35 years old to one today that lives, on average, at least in the United States, to be about 78. And we can continue to extend longevity if we choose to, but it's a choice because longevity is malleable. And illustrating that these changes, that these opportunities are in front of us is really exciting for me. I also take into account both our past behaviors, our past history, because those are great predictors for our future. So in seeing what happened in the post-war period, it gives us a sense of what's coming in the post-COVID era as well. So, so what do you see coming? What kind of changes are ahead and, and how might we prepare for them? Well, I think the single biggest one that we should all anticipate is that we will be working longer. And believe it or not, a growing number of people are doing this by choice, not necessarily by necessity. Um, There are some people that do it for both reasons. But working longer has been proven to show improved financial health, but also physical health, mental health, and greater levels of cognition. So where you might think, yeah, you know, I finally hit that retirement age at 65. Well, you may have another 20 or 30 years where you're not working. And if you're not working, you actually start to see decreases in your overall physical well-being. I think more and more people will choose to stay uh, in the workforce because we have a tighter labor market and because they see that a rational decision to stay involved, to stay connected, really could be a central component of their life plan and keep them alive, not just for a longer period of time, but for a healthier period of time. So other than the, the individual implications of, of working longer, and I'm with you, I, you know, I, I love to work and we'll keep doing it. W- what are the, the cultural implications of this aging workforce that we have and this declining birth rate that we have? I mean, if you extrapolate and go out 10 or 20 years, what's it going to look like? Uh, perhaps the best thing that we can expect from this is greater social cohesion. When we are all working and we are all rowing roughly in the same direction, we see a a community, a country come tighter together, much like we saw in the 1950s. When we start to pull apart, when we start to fall into our different camps, our different tribes, some of which were age-based, the retirees, the not retirees, that starts pulling us apart. So when we're all rowing together, we all have this common mission, this common vision for what the future will be. And we are each valued as human beings and contributors, that actually works best for us as a society. And it really creates a new level of harmony. If people are working longer, there's also this added benefit that we consider more needs in the design of products and services. Take, for example, um, what's happening at Porsche right now. Porsche is, of course, a major luxury automaker in Germany. Porsche has extended the working lives of their employees significantly by making modifications within their factories that allow people to work for longer periods of time. What's happened is nothing short of magical. Older workers are imparting their knowledge onto younger workers. They're also imparting their life experience. 
and their needs. Because as we get older, it's likely that we acquire disability. I'm wearing glasses today. That's an acquired disability. I'll lose strength at some time, most likely. That's an acquired disability. So when those different types of things are built into products, when younger people and older people are designing hand in hand, we build products that are better for us at the end of the day that make the human superhuman and make people with disability feel like they're part of us and they're part of our larger tribe. As a guy who is an optimist, I'm certain, Bradley, that you are always looking for the silver lining. And I think the pandemic has it's revealed a lot of stuff. Number one, it's revealed you know, what we knew before, but we maybe didn't pay enough attention to, and that is the importance of social engagement. But as you say, I, I think there's going to be this battle between society pulling apart and trying to come together. What did you learn from the pandemic? How has that affected your work? How did that change the research or the trajectory of, of what you thought might happen? Yeah, you know, the, the pandemic was like a giant syringe of adrenaline uh, thrust into our system. So many of the predictions that we thought were coming around 2030 or so, they actually came a lot sooner. Uh, I joke that the past two years has actually felt like um, the next two decades in terms of technological change, social change, and the like. There are some things that we haven't quite figured out yet. Um, the dust is still settling on change. Um, but one of the biggest questions that sits in my mind is the future of remote work and the office place, because we may actually start to see, I'm sorry, we actually have started to see some migratory patterns of people away from larger cities to medium-sized cities or smaller ones, which will remake the political map overall. Right now, because of the nature of our political systems, people who live in rural areas, who typically are older, whiter, uh, they're more male than female, have an outsized voice in our electorate, at least in terms of national politics. If you live in the coastal areas, Younger people perhaps have a greater voice in those areas, but not in the national body politic. So when we don't have that equity in representation, we start to see fissures develop. And I think that we've really been seeing those fissures develop and sometimes really present themselves as, as much larger chasms uh, over the past 20 years. I do believe that this will start to even out at some point in the near future, but it won't come without a period of, of trauma, uh, a period in which we'll see some conflict uh, between the urban and rural areas, but also between the old and the young. Because for every period of transition, there's opportunity, but there's also um, risk. And some people will lose out during this period, but on the whole, the march forward will continue. And obviously, right now, one of the things that changed a lot during the pandemic is, is is what you and I are doing right now. I mean, this technology has existed. I think we started to use it because we had to, and now we continue because it works really, really well. Uh, mm -hmm. I, I think there is this misconception about the extent of the adoption of technology by older adults. And, and yes, I will readily admit many 85-year-olds have no interest nor ability to do that. But, you know, as this aging continues... Um, 65, 75-year-olds are pretty sharp. Might this type of interaction be important for, for older adults moving forward? Might this be a really important key to keeping older adults connected? Well, there's no doubt, Mark. This is one of the best ways that we can ensure social connectivity is through technology. Um, nothing will replace human-to-human uh, -human contact, 
being able to sit in the room across the table from a, a friend, a colleague, uh, an acquaintance. But technology actually can be a great enabler. Not only have we seen during the pandemic that it's helped people guard against isolation, um, but we're actually not, just not seeing that guarding happening just in human-to-human contact like we're doing here today. There's actually some really great research that's indicated that uh, devices like Alexa, like uh, Google Voice, um, when used properly, can actually help stave off isolation as well. They have a similar uh, response within the human um, brain that says that they're connected in better ways. So technology, you know, we're still babies when it comes to this technology, and we're still really learning about how it affects us long term. But there are a lot of positives that we've seen during the pandemic. We've also seen that technologies like this will help our delivery of care. That's obviously a big issue because there are going to be so many more older people and so few younger people. We're also going to see technology being delivered in that care sector in the home. More and more now, telehealth visits have become commonplace. We're at the early days of the metaverse where you might be actually able to meet with your doctor in your home in virtual reality. Um, We've seen the uh, advent of new vaccines uh, like mRNA, which shows great promise in reprogramming ourselves, perhaps to fight against uh, diseases that we've been fighting against for years, whether it be HIV AIDS or cancers. There's a lot of promise from this period. And period. this tips, tends to typically happen during periods of great disruption comes great change. It'll take a while for this all to settle down, but it brings a lot of optimism to the table because we know that a lot of the things that we've been fighting for, um, those, those solutions are actually going to come to fruition very soon. Periods of great disruption? A time of change? Well, when we come back, Mark and demographic futurist Bradley Sherman will talk about what he believes is the greatest threat that we face and what it's going to take from all of us to overcome it. The conversation continues on Growing Boulder. Support for Growing Boulder provided by Caring Transitions, a senior move resource to help families ease the stress of life's transitions, offering relocation, home cleanouts, and the resale of everyday household items. Locations near you at caringtransitions.com. Welcome back to Growing Boulder. So society is changing all around us, and as the country ages, we're going to need to be prepared for a whole lot of new realities. So how do we do that? Well, let's continue the conversation between Mark Middleton and demographic futurist Bradley Sherman. In the introduction to you, I mentioned that some feel like the age wave presents as big a challenge as does uh, global warming. And, uh, you know, so how do you view your role? Uh, is there an urgency to your message? Or are you just trying to 
cause us to step back and think about things that might impact our own life? Or, you know, what's the potential danger here if we don't pay attention to what you've foreseen? The single greatest threat to older people in America right now is the social welfare system falling apart. And if we do nothing, if we say, you know what, retiring at 65, that's cool. If we insist that we want to live off um, government pension for 30, 40 years, we will very quickly see that system fall apart. A lot of those social welfare programs that we really hold sacrosanct will no longer be able to operate. And we can't borrow against our children's future to pay for retirees today. That just doesn't make sense. Here's what happens if we do nothing. Not only do we have these social welfare programs that will really hold us back, but we'll also start to see the United States economy really start to drag because we'll have too few people out of work and too few people in work and too few people paying taxes, which carries the burden for the larger country. So while I sound very optimistic in the book, I'm also very clear eyed about the catastrophe that can happen in this country if we do nothing at all. And I worry uh, about the political will of our leaders to make the changes that are necessary. I do believe that we have a responsibility to rethink the social contract, to at least have a conversation about what it means, because retiring at 62 to 67, those retirement ages, early to late, that was designed, you know, nearly 60 years ago now, over 60 years ago now. Our lives are much different than they were back then. If you meet an average retiree or somebody around retirement age, they don't present like somebody did um, 60, 70, 80 years ago. They present as very healthy, very engaged, digitally literate, and they have that ability to work. So there's an individual responsibility, I believe, for older people in particular to come to the table and say, we get it. We need to rethink the way we live. And I believe that's already starting to happen. Um, but there's also a responsibility for government leaders to step in, too. And if we do nothing, um, we can actually see what's happening in this dystopia that's developing in the countryside right now. What few people realize is that while the United States doesn't hit this super age period until 2030, a full third of American counties are already there. And five states, including Florida, Delaware, Maine, West Virginia, and Vermont have already passed that tipping point of becoming superaged. Now, there's no gloom and doom in all of these places, but when you look at certain pockets, they hit this precipice right before they start to depopulate. And what happens is no tax base, that means no schools, no schools, no hospitals, retail starts to move out, the ability to, to even have a grocery store evaporates. And what you have left behind is a very poor, very desperate population. That's the worst case scenario if we do nothing. So I think we sit at a very unique inflection point now where we could take the reins. We could say, look at all this opportunity that exists by this population that is older, healthier, stronger, more mentally fit than ever before in human history and leverage them for the greater good. I appreciate the dystopian 
image there because I think it's important, but as a couple of optimists, let's go the other direction so we don't leave people with a bad taste in their mouth. Yeah. If we do everything right, if we leverage all of these opportunities, if we make the right choices, tell me how good it can be for us in the future. Well, first of all, um, the single greatest tool that we have to fight against ageism is a tight labor market. The single greatest tool we have to fight ageism is to show that older adults are actually competent and are willing to work and produce for this country. I know they are. You know they are. Everyone listening to this, I think, would assume um, that they are as well. But because we've had such significant youth bias favoring young people above older people, not just since the baby boom for all of human history, this is something that we really have to fight against. But like I said, 1950s America, older men, one out of two over 65 were in the workplace. The workplace had a different kind of uh, hum to it, a different kind of rhythm. That can come. What we see in the very positive, the best case scenarios, because people are working longer, they stay healthier. We lower healthcare costs across the board, across the nation. We start to see greater investments in new technologies and infrastructure that are considerate of our very diverse needs over the course of a lifespan. And it's a bit like choosing to jump out of a plane with a parachute or not we will eventually start to slow our growth because we are having fewer populations year after year. So the dystopian approach is to jump from the plane without a parachute. The utopian approach is to jump with one in mind, working longer, staying connected, staying active, being part of the greater good. Well, thank you, Bradley, for helping us put our parachute on today, folks. Uh, the book is Super Age, and you can get it wherever really good books are sold. Uh, Bradley Sherman, thank you so much. Appreciate your time, and, and thanks for the work that you do. It's been great being here. Thank you for mu so much, and thank you for the work you do as well. Up next, once you choose a path in life, can you change it? And what happens if you do? That's next on Growing Boulder. Stay connected to Growing Boulder for daily doses of hope, inspiration, and possibility. Find us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram for our latest stories and motivational pictures. Well, did you ever feel stale in your career at work in what you do? You know, kind of been there, done that, almost like it's Groundhog Day over and over again. I'm Bill Schaefer, and this is Growing Bolder, where we learn it doesn't have to be that way, that when you make a career choice, that doesn't mean it's over and done, that you don't just get one spin of the wheel, that you can do so much more with your life. Our next guest is a medical doctor, a healthcare consultant, a world traveler, an incredible photographer, and a drone pilot, and the list goes on and on and on. Oh, oh, and she's also a mother of two. Let's say hi to Dr. Claire Johnson. Hey, Claire, how are you? Hi, I'm doing well. Thanks I for love having me. this. 
I love this story because I think so many of us make our decisions and stop, you know? So when people ask you what you do, what do you say? Well, well, I think I say initially I'm a mother to two incredible now adult, young adult children. Um, but career-wise, yes, I did start the traditional route of college and undergrad and medical school and practicing in the U.S. And that, but I have always had this desire to to travel, um, and I have traveled when uh, since I was a child. My first international flight was at three years old from New York to Germany. My father was career military. And um, there came a time in my life where I already liked giving back to my community. And so I wanted to give back internationally. And I looked into combining medicine and international assignments. And so those have taken me around the world. And as you mentioned too, I also, uh, I, I guess I'm just a, always loved education and intrigued by, especially some fields that have less women in them. So I then a few years ago became interested in uh, drone photography and getting my FAA license in drone pilot. And people ask me like, how is that connected to medicine? And it's not, it's not connected at all. And a lot of it's been in mapping and in engineering and a field where I had no experience, but I, I was self-taught and uh, learned along the way. And so I just oh, have always had this desire to be open to the possibilities. Yeah, I think that's what it is, too. It seems to be a mindset uh, with you that maybe we can learn a little bit from. Because I think most people... Most people that we interview who are physicians, they'll say mm-hmm. something like, well, you know, I always knew I wanted to heal people. But is it true you really hadn't thought too much about medicine until you entered a pageant? Yes, that is true. So I grew up in Indianapolis and I thought I was going to go into psychology, medicine, something like that. But then I entered the 500 Festival pageant and my sponsor, we all... Uh, I was on the court, which are the top five in, in the, there are 33 for 33 cars, 33 princesses. And my sponsor on the court was an OBGYN, very prominent OBGYN, Riley Lloyd in Indianapolis. And he said, have you ever thought about becoming a physician? And I hadn't. Uh, and I shadowed him for a day in labor and delivery and saw a birth and I was sold. I said, sign me up. I decided early that I wanted to work in women's health, uh, which was, has been such a rewarding career all over the world, delivered babies in many different areas around the world. And um, yeah, went from there. But it all started with a pageant, yes. <laughs> yeah, I, I think that's a really important uh, point for all that all of us can like think about our own lives through your prism because you didn't, you know, we always think, well, that that person obviously had a gift for something or knew that's what they wanted to do forever, but I'm not Mm -hmm. real sure what I want to do. And so we think there's something wrong with us or something missing. And it Mm -hmm. seems like through your life, you kind of took a look at where you were and you assessed a situation and you took advantage of the opportunities in front of you. Mm -hmm. Yeah. We can always rethink. I, I think that happened with me in medicine. It happened with me as a drone pilot. I started Recently, I started in 2018, so I say recently, but it's about four years ago. And I, I'd already had a passion for photography. And I saw a special on Netflix, and one of the photographers was using a drone. 
And, um, and that's how I actually started was flying drones, even when I was doing medical missions over tribes. And, but then uh, two years ago, I had an opportunity under a NASA project to do drone mapping. And I, I knew nothing about drone mapping. I knew nothing about the very high tech drones i fly what's called the inspire 2 and i attach a camera called the micasense multi-spectral camera but i had not it's not my field at all but i thought okay i'm going to figure this out because i have an opportunity and i think that's what it is with so many things like sometimes you you know as long as you're not harming someone that just you know jump in take that opportunity jump in and you can always rethink things you have never thought about before and i was rethinking things in my 20s with going into medicine and rethinking things in my 40s with uh, my opportunities in, in drone pilots and and it still continues there there are things out there that um i am now considering more activities or or challenges that I haven't thought about before, but are still available to me. I want to point out too that you know we looked at your Instagram page to to see mm-hmm. some of the photos that you took, and the ones that really struck me were the portraits. And, and I kind of understand that this came about because you'd be on medical missions to like refugee camps, and on your breaks, you would take a few photos of these incredible people. That I mean, these are intimate, personal portraits how did that come about and and what what did you see with your eye that you felt you had to mm-hmm. capture um one of my best experiences when it related to photography and connection was working in the Rohingya refugee camp when i photograph around the world i never want anyone to feel like an animal in a cage is how they put it you know that you're you're just showing up you're click 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 and you leave so i always bring an instax or or a polaroid type camera with me and it's the whole give a picture get a picture and so it was this whole new concept i had of of what photography actually means around the world so i had little the children all lined up and i was taking pictures of them and picture and giving them pictures and then a gentleman who was probably probably oh let's say 80 years old he walked up to me you know he's speaking different languages but he pointed to me and he wanted a photo. And what we don't realize, too, around the world is, number one, there's not a big access to cameras, of course. Um, there's a little more access to phones now, but they don't have mirrors. So it's not, you know, we, we know what we look like all the time. We know what we look like every every morning. We go to the bathroom and look in the mirror. But they, they don't have this concept of, like, what they look like because they don't see themselves often. But when he walked up to me and it was like, me, photo, give me a photo. And I took it. And then you have to wait those two minutes, you know, of magic before it appears on there. Like, oh, wait, it's coming. And he looked at that photo and the smile that he had on his face, I realized like this, it's so universal. And, and I really feel like I was able to give more smiles through my photography than medicine. I mean, medicine, of course, can be life saving and you're helping injuries with the smiles that I saw from photography and people being able to see themselves it, it's such just like universal human experience that just really reinforce doing international photography well, those pictures they're they're so revealing and and I, you know, I encourage anyone to take a look at them they're just great and they they take us to places that we probably will never have a chance to go in our own lives and it it sure seems that you figured out how to live life 
to the fullest. And I was kind of surprised a little bit, maybe not so much anymore, that you're pretty relaxed about mentioning your age, but you seem proud of your age and you seem to to take aging as, uh, you know, you, you, you're a sum of your experiences and you're very proud of that. Very proud. There's a lot of gratitude too. And uh, I've done a lot of things where I've been very physically active, run ultra marathons, done a lot of hiking around the world. And I think I have so much gratitude for this body. Like, wow, it's, you know, very proud to be 50. Like it's carried me through so it's one body, you know, it's, it's carried me through uh, so much around the world that I'm, I'm very proud of that. You've traveled the world and a lot of it alone. You've had mm-hmm. every reason to say no. Nobody would have blamed you. So, well, it's too dangerous or I'm a woman or I'm African-American. And I can't do this and would be risky to do that. How do you make yourself take risks? I, and I guess I'm asking selfishly to inspire us to do it. How do you make yourself say yes? I see two sides of travel. Um, I see the side where, you know, you it is wonderful to go out and see the world and all that. But I also understand that it's not for everyone. So it's kind of like, you know, it's like that bell-shaped curve. So for some, it's it's just really not for them. It's, it's too, well, unfortunately, some of it can be expensive. It doesn't have to be, but, um, or it's just, it's just too outside of their box. Um, and then there's me who, you know, is, who I get dropped off in, in the middle of Chad and have to figure my way, um, down to a, a hospital to, to, to work. And then there's that curve in the middle. And in the middle, I think is where we can encourage those that it's safer than you think. There are more people out there who will help you than you think. The, there's less of a language barrier, too, uh, than you think. And really, in general, humans truly are the same. It's very cliche, but they're very, they're, we're alike. We are more helpful than harmful. I have had some silly near misses here or there, but I've, in general, had a wonderful time ch- uh, um, traveling. I think the thing is, is when people say, oh, I want to do this or someday, one of my friends always says, someday is not a day of the week to just commit and make the plan and do it. And you won't regret it. You, I've looked back and I've not regretted any, even the places I've had the most challenges, I've never regretted anywhere I've ever traveled. Do you think about the future? What's your what's next in life? You know, I hadn't thought about it. I hadn't thought about it for a little bit. And and things did, and especially when we're in this age, 50 and up, I'm in a new stage that I hadn't been in before. I'm now an empty nester. Um, so I, there, there is this like somewhat restructuring, rethinking of my life. But I, like I mentioned, I have a history of ultramarathons. Um, I used to set a lot of these goals. I had half marathons. Chicago was my first marathon. And then I started, I read a book called Relentless Forward Progress, and it inspired me to start doing ultra marathons. So I have, um, I've run the, the race in Born to Run. It's a 50 mile ultra marathon in the Copper Canyon Mountains with the Tatahumara Indians. I've run that twice. Um, I ran, I was the only American to run uh, a race in Tasmania called the Cradle Mountain Run. 
which is along the overland track in Tasmania. I've run the Patagonia ultra marathon. But, you know, as we age, I'm looking out for my body. I've never had an injury. Uh, again, I believe a lot in self-care. So I thought, okay, I need a new goal, but I don't want it to be running. Um, I, I have done some triathlons, but then I was have I had a hike with my daughter Sunday morning, and I was like, "What? You know, I need a new challenge. I need a new challenge." And then I thought of one, and the 14ers. I can't remember how many 14ers we have, but I think we have. There's 58 in Colorado, but I think I'd like to. That's my new challenge. Is I'd like to do several 14,000 feet summits per year. You know, so the training is better on my body. I can uh, even if I'm let's say in the Midwest and I, and I don't have the hills, I can do. I can put on weights, I can rock, I can uh, hike parking garages. <laughs> um, and then I can go out to Colorado, acclimate a little bit and do some 14ers. And uh, so I think that's gonna be my new goal. And I've really realized that it is something, having that goal, even though I feel like I've had other exciting things going on, but having that goal is such a drive but we can adjust it to our age and uh, in our, I don't know, our self-care. And there are plenty of people who are still running, but um, I'm looking for something a little more gentle on my joints. So, that, yeah, that's my new, long story short, that's my new goal are some 14ers. Yeah, I really salute you on the ultra marathons. I'm a guy who considers it a good day if I can limp down the stairs and make it to the kitchen <laughs> in the morning. So we could all adjust our goals to where we are in life. Um, let's let's kind of wrap up with a takeaway. I mean, you're a physician. So write us a prescription. What's your prescription for a life well lived? Uh, a life well lived. Waking up with gratitude. Being... Uh, grateful for having another day, especially, especially when you compare it to people living parallel lives and in, in far more challenging places uh, that you may be. Self-care, hydrating, supplements, all of those things that we can do preventatively before catching problems, um, relationships, connections that we have with friends and family, continuing those keep on moving every day, uh, whether it's walking or hiking or cycling, uh, just a little bit every day, keep on moving um, and setting goals. And I'd also say experiences, especially uh, they can be near connecting with uh, children in need in your community homeless in your community or and connecting in the rest of the world if possible well she is an inspiration a great example that we all need to keep an eye out for the opportunities in our lives of of what can happen if we take advantage of them and 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 why we should never limit ourselves to the labels that people use to define us or maybe the ones that we use to define ourselves a great visit with dr claire johnson Up next, I'm going to tell you what's on my mind today. Maybe, just maybe, it'll change yours. This is Growing Boulder.
Sign up for the Growing Boulder Insider Newsletter, delivered to your inbox every week. Be the first to see our latest interviews, stories, and tips for making each day count. Sign up today at growingbolder.com. Miss an episode of Growing Boulder Radio? Subscribe to our podcast and get it on your mobile device. Details at growingbolder.com slash podcasts. Welcome back to Growing Boulder, one of the most unique programs anywhere because, uh, you know, it's all about breaking the ageist stereotypes and realizing what's possible for all of us as we get older. Most of the time, we're kind of a lone voice out there, but every once in a while, somebody gets it. Growing Boulder is the official media partner of the National Senior Games, and we were covering this incredible event in Fort Lauderdale when I ran into former women's pro tennis star and Olympic broadcaster Mary Carrillo, and, well, I just had to say hi, and here's some of that conversation. Tell me what you're doing here. Why, why have you guys shown up at this event? Uh... I work on a show for HB, on HBO called Real Sports with Brian Gumbel, and we have been here shooting it the last week. We're doing a story, I think it's for the August show, on the senior games and what the through line is, you know, among all these players. We, not just the swimmers, but we were out at track and field. We just interviewed a woman who turns 100 in August. It's remarkable what these people... I mean, we're, we're, we focused on maybe six or seven athletes here. Everyone here has a story, Mark. You know that everyone here has a story of resilience and of you know strength, dedication. It's very inspiring, very very inspiring. Other than being great content for a show and yeah. a message that our culture needs to hear, yeah. what does it do for Mary Carrillo, a, a woman in her mid sixties, to, to talk to a woman in her one hundreds who is as sharp as she can be? I made her take out her driver's license, <laughs> and I accused her of it being a, a fake that she got online. <laughs> I mean, I'm, yeah, I'm 65 years old, and I consider myself in some kind of like, relatively good shape. I got nothing on her. She, on her driver's license, it says she's an organ donor. I'd take her organs any day of the week. <laughs> I mean, uh, yeah, I, I, re- I realized that I, I should probably get off the couch more, watch TV less, you know, just keep things oiled up and moving. I'm in pretty good shape, but I'm nothing like these athletes. Isn't that something to say? Uh, it's something to say. And, and what they all keep saying, I mean, almost to an athlete, they just keep the secret. They say it's a, just keep moving. Keep moving. Isn't that what you hear all the time? Amen. All the time. Yeah. Folks, the Growing Boulder message of hope, inspiration, and possibility personified. And Bill, I have to tell you, that was one of my favorite moments at the National Senior Games, was talking to Mary Carrillo. Uh, It really was one of my favorite lines, I guess, is when she said, I told Charlotte I'd take any one of her organs at 100 years old. And really, that's kind of the feeling we all came away with, folks. Uh, It really is inspiring to see. And I think the Growing Boulder message is starting to take hold right now. That, to me, was the best part, Mark, where she looked at you and said what we've known for years from doing this program, that all of these people are fascinating stories and amazing individuals that inspire us all. So we can just segue from that right into the next segment, which is On My Mind with Mark. What do you have for us today? You know, Bill, I like uh, like that you're excited about this segment all the time. You're a curious fellow. Uh, and that's what's on my mind is curiosity. And I say that because I just got done writing, as we all do, write stories for Growing Boulder magazine. And the story that I wrote for the most recent 
edition of Growing Boulder magazine, which, by the way, folks, is an incredible magazine. You can sign up and get a digital version of it for free by going to growingboulder.com. But the cover story is on a guy you and I both know by the name of Nick Nanton. And I wanted to interview Nick because Nick has, you know, just created this business of his own doing documentary films. He did a documentary film on Peter Dianimus, the founder of the X-Prize, Larry King, Rudy Rudiger, uh, the, the, the object of the big movie, Rudy. He's talked to everybody from Tony Robbins to Dean Kamen, the guy who invented the Segway. A lot of older people who have been successful. And I asked Nick, what did he learn? Is there a thread that runs through all of these very successful people? And he said that of all of these successful elders that he's had the privilege of meeting and interviewing, the one topic that comes up every time is curiosity. They all say, I am relentlessly curious. And Nick said that, uh, you know, the people who have achieved the most in life, no matter their age, are those that are most curious because curiosity drives lifelong learning. And you and I have seen that in the people that we've interviewed. They're really older people. It's interesting to me, the most successful people and the most long-lived people the active centenarians have the same thing and that's curiosity it's almost like that step one they don't stop after they hear the story or learn about what they're curious about they find a way to apply it either to their own lives or to some societal problem in the case of a lot of these uh, big names that you mentioned but just applying it to your own life can make all the difference that's called inspiration isn't it yeah and, and it's what humans are made to do we're made to be curious and the thing that's important about curiosity is that it does eventually ultimately lead to purpose. And, you know, we've all heard that, uh, you know, people in the, the academic world will say publish or perish. I think something that's more important is purpose or perish. If you don't have purpose, ultimately you will perish as you grow older. Purpose is what keeps you alive, and curiosity is what leads to purpose. Yeah, and when, you, when you're no longer curious, it's almost like you've thrown in the towel. It's not fun anymore. Right. It doesn't. You're not connected. You're not connected. And we really are, when it comes right down to it at the very end, we are all one. I'm curious what you're going to say next. You know what I'm going to say? In 10 seconds. You mentioned something really cool about Growing Boulder Magazine. And he's right, folks. You can see it online for free at growingboulder.com. Go check it out, and we'll see you right back here again next time. I'm curious about that. The Growing Boulder Radio Show is a production of Growing Boulder, LLC. All rights reserved. This program was recorded at Growing Boulder Studios in Orlando and is available as a weekly podcast on NPR One, iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher, and TuneIn. It is written and produced by Jill Middleton, Mark Middleton, and Bill Schaefer. Technical director is Jason Morrow. Production manager is Michael Nannis. Chief audio engineer is Mac Dula. And our most important team member, you. Follow us on Facebook and Instagram to keep growing bolder every day. Crimson flames tied through my ears, flowing high and mighty trapped. Countless fire and flaming road, using ideas as my map. We'll meet on edges soon, say.